This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia-Dean. Today is Friday, October 21st. Coming up, why the City of Independence spent $2 million of federal COVID-19 relief on sniper rifles, tactical gear, and police salaries. Plus, Kansas Jayhawks football has stirred up talk this fall with their early season success. But not all the chatter is about their 5-2 record under coach Lance Leipold. They're talking in that same conversation as we're going to be able to continue this. Uh, is he going to leave or is he going to stay? We'll find out what's keeping KU fans on the edge of their seats. But first, some headlines. The U.S. Attorney's Offices for Kansas and the Western District of Missouri have appointed district election officers to handle voting rights concerns that arise during the November 8th midterm election. KCUR's Dan Margulies reports. The appointments are part of a nationwide Election Day program by the U.S. Justice Department to address things like threats of violence against election officials as well as election fraud. In Kansas, Assistant U.S. Attorney Jared Magg will oversee the effort. In the Western District of Missouri, Assistant U.S. Attorney Alan Simpson will oversee the effort. In addition, the FBI will have special agents available in each of its field offices to address allegations of election abuses and irregularities. Kansans will vote on a constitutional amendment that would let lawmakers overturn rules and regulations set by the governor. Dylan Lyson of the Kansas News Service reports. Alexandra Middlewood, a political scientist at Wichita State University, says important questions are appearing on the ballot because of the legislature's Republican supermajority. It has votes needed to pass polarizing amendments. So it does allow them wider latitude to try to put things like this on the ballot. Voters will also decide whether to keep six of the Kansas Supreme Court justices. Some abortion opponents want to remove them for a ruling that says the state constitution protects abortion rights. Election day is November 8th. Community groups are asking the federal government to investigate the Topeka Police Department's use of force. Blaze Mesa of the Kansas News Service reports. The concerns stem from multiple incidents. In recent weeks, Topeka police shot and killed two black men who were holding knives. Officials say using force was justified, but the community organizations point out that white Topekans holding machetes have survived encounters with police. The groups are further concerned that when officers shot at the knife-wielding suspects, they did so in a public area and could have hit innocent bystanders. The Topeka Capital Journal reports that it isn't clear whether the Department of Justice will investigate these cases. Last year, the American Rescue Plan Act, known as ARPA, awarded billions of dollars in COVID-19 relief funding to local governments. Independence, Missouri got $20 million and spent $2 million of it on the police department, buying sniper rifles and tactical gear, and offering retention and hiring bonuses. Anastasia Valeva is a data fellow at The Marshall Project, a website that reports on criminal justice. She and her colleagues took a look at the federal government's ARPA spending data, and she told me over Zoom that independents spent less than a million dollars of COVID relief funding on healthcare, partially because it got rid of its health department in 2017 in order to spend more on the police department. So how much money did they spend on the police department and what did they use that money for? So altogether, they spend around $2 million on police and most of it is really retention payment and hiring bonuses. So it's around $1,700,000 altogether. Uh, And the rest is really equipment. So it includes things like sniper rifles and ballistic helmets and 
uh, riot gear. And, you know, the interesting thing is that all of this was categorized as community violence intervention in the data that we've seen. So what did the city tell you about why they invested in that type of equipment for the police? So right when we came across this uh, spending on sniper rifles as community violence intervention, we got really interested how did that happen? And we called uh, police chief and we talked to city manager and they were really reassuring that, you know, the riot might be at their doorstep and that they really are understaffed uh, with police. So they also said that city council members were perceiving that uh, priorities of uh, city residents are public uh, safety. And so this is how they were responding to that. So why did they spend so much on retention and hiring for police officers? Right. So um, they're trying to fill the empty vacancies they have, and they created these new vacancies with a new uh, sales tax. And they want to really increase their police stuff. Uh, Actually, they want to go higher than pre-pandemic level. So that's really their priority. And I think... Their spending, their ARPA spending really reflects those priorities. Uh, And what was interesting for us is that while ARPA is supposed to, you know, uh, prevent severe cuts in um, public employees for independence, for example, it helps to increase their police stuff. So how much COVID relief money did they spend on public health? Yeah, uh, I should say not a lot. So initially uh, in the proposal by the city manager, they only had $300,000, you know, which like out of 20 million is just not a lot. Uh, But then uh, when they discussed it at the city council, uh, one of the city council members, Karen DeLucci, who uh, passed away, uh, she then proposed to increase that. And she said, this is the money, uh, is the gift from the government and uh, it's a COVID-19 relief. So we should spend it on public health, too. And, you know, like reluctantly, they agreed to increase it um, up to 700 something thousand dollars. So how common is it for local governments to spend their federal COVID relief funds on policing? We think that independence is, you know, both um, a very typical example of how this happens. Uh, We've been doing a national story and we've seen that, um, you know, local governments across the country are allocating billions of ARPA money for the criminal justice system. But what makes independence stand out is how transparent it is and how it allows to look at how these decisions are being made and how the spending is being discussed and voted on. So really, with independence, we could dive into how exactly this decision-making process happened. How did you find this story? The Department of Justice is publishing this data. It comes as one huge data set. It was 43,000 level rows with data. And uh, we got it. We started poking around. We quickly realized it was a trove of stories, but the challenge was to make sense of this data. And because we are the Marshall Project focusing on the criminal justice system, 
we started looking for keywords such as, you know, police or courts or prisons. And so we soon started seeing some patterns in the data, such as, uh, you know, allocating COVID-19 relief money to police payroll and bonuses or purchasing equipment. And we started reading through examples. And then we came across something really interesting, like this spending on sniper rifles in your metro area. And uh, we made a couple of calls and soon it became clear that it was more of a standalone story because I could hear that council members, you know, they had opinions and they did not agree. So we could dig deeper and see precisely how this ARPA budget was discussed. So why should people care about how this federal COVID aid was spent? First of all, it's huge amount of money, right? It's $350 billion uh, for state, local, territorial and tribal governments. It's unprecedented. Uh, to put that into perspective, this is something that hadn't happened in decades. The previous federal COVID relief fund, the CARES Act, was twice less than that. And so how this is spent is rarely questioned, partly because this data is so hard to get and hard to analyze. But if anything, uh, this is exactly what we should be doing because you know this money is being discussed right as we speak. and. The data is being reported to the Treasury with a uh, time lag, right? So the latest data we have on the national level is as of first quarter of 2022, and we are now in October. And so it is really important to go, you know, on the level of a local city council and see what is being discussed and engage because there's hardly any oversight to that spending. What is this funding supposed to be used for? Like what kind of oversight exists for this? The Department of Treasury made it really flexible for local governments both to spend this money and to report on this money. Uh, there are really only few unelegible uses and uh, the reporting is very lax. And the thing is that local governments, they have to submit their reporting sort of post factum. There are also hardly any signals from the Treasury that if some spending was ineligible, there would be any kind of action, you know, to kind of take that money back or anything. So this is exactly where, you know, local uh, activists, journalists, or uh, engaged citizens can come in because the most up-to-date informa information about uh, ARPA spending happens on the local level, and this is where we should be looking. That was Anastasia Valeva of The Marshall Project. You can read her story at kcur.org or at themarshallproject.org. With a 5-2 and two record this season and one win away from the chance to play in a bowl game for the first time since 2008, the University of Kansas football team has already exceeded expectations. But how long will the good times last under the present head coach? Greg Eklund has more for KCUR. Even at a basketball school like KU, the football program is incredibly important. And not only for the revenue it brings in, just ask men's basketball coach Bill Self, who has two NCAA tournament championships to his name. Nothing sets the energy uh, or enthusiasm on, on, a, on a college campus more than a good football team does in the fall. And that's what happened this fall when KU's football success sent shockwaves through the sporting world. After opening the season with five straight wins, a week six matchup against the still unbeaten TCU Horned Frogs attracted ESPN's College Game Day to Lawrence. 
It was the first time the national pregame show broadcast from Memorial Stadium. Gale Sayers, the Kansas Comet. Last year, in Coach Lance Leifold's first season at KU, the Jayhawks were 2-10. and 10. On paper, at least, it continued a trend of disappointing results. This year, it's fair to say, hope has been restored to the KU football faithful. I knew a year ago that we were a ways away, so to, to say I could imagine that at this time now. Leipold isn't alone. Given KU's deplorable record through the 2010s, few saw this turnaround coming. Since KU fired coach Mark Mangino in 2009, the program went through four football coaches and didn't have a single winning season. Right, different, different story. Yeah. The collapse made tailgating on the corner of 11th and Mississippi near the stadium a lonely prospect. I mean, there's been times where there's only eight or ten cars in this parking lot. But Michael Monroe, a longtime fan who lives in Lawrence, says the buzz among KU fans is more about Leipold's long-term future at the school. It's the talk. Just as much as people are talking about how good the team is doing, they're talking in that same conversation, as, or are we going to be able to continue this? Uh, is he going to leave or is he going to stay? The Jayhawks haven't had a football coach who made a permanent home in Lawrence since Don Fambro, who, in the 1970s and 80s, had two stints as head coach. In his eight seasons, Fambro's team lost more games than they won but Fambro still has a street named after him right next to the football stadium. For now, Leipold says he's focused on the Jayhawks, not his hypothetical next job. We're extremely happy here. We have no plans of going anywhere. Long-time followers of Jayhawks athletics have heard this before, about 20 years ago. Amid speculation at that time, former basketball coach Roy Williams told the Jayhawk faithful he wasn't going anywhere. Three years later, Williams accepted an offer to coach at the University of North Carolina, his native state. Past ties could potentially lure Leipold away, too. Nebraska and Wisconsin are now looking for new football coaches. Leipold's roots are in Wisconsin, and he knows Paul Christ, the coach the Badgers fired. That's a good family, good man, and it's just unfortunate with guys who average nine wins a year get let go. Leipold has seen it more than once. At Nebraska, Frank Solich averaged nine wins a year for six seasons before he was fired. Leipold knew him, too, having worked under Solich for three of those six seasons. In his own six years at the helm of the University of Buffalo, Leipold proved he can reverse the direction of a football program. But when he compares KU's last season to this year... Yeah, there's probably a moment you got to pinch yourself a little bit. If this turnaround season isn't enough, the athletics department has presented other reasons to stay, including the announcement of an estimated $350 million upgrade in and around the football stadium. Those upgrades could make for better tailgating, but it remains to be seen if there'll be enough to keep Leifold in Lawrence for the long haul. For KCUR 89.3, I'm Greg Eckler. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia-Dean. This podcast is produced by Byron Love and KCUR Studios and edited by Lisa Rodriguez and Gabe Rosenberg. For more local news from Kansas City's NPR station, visit kcur.org. On Monday, we'll take a look at the upcoming local elections in Kansas City. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon. Thank you.